Hey mate, Forty here. So, whatever happened to Stefan Molyneux? Remember, he was uh, worse than Socrates. He was out there corrupting the youth. He was a major figure, getting written up in the New York Times. His content was constantly being discussed. He was one of the, the major victims of social media, just kicking him off, widespread, just kicked him off, and. Then he just completely fell out of the national conversation. I had absolutely no idea what uh, happened to Stefan. I I didn't pay ever pay particular attention to Stefan. Just intermittently, when he would show up, I would I would look at him. I remember he had an interview with IQ researcher Linda Gottfriedson, and it, it bothered me because he did most of the talking. So here he's got an expert on intelligence on his show, right? A highly esteemed professor, someone who's got the the esteem of her peers, and and Stefan was doing half the talking, if not the majority of the, of the talking. I thought, bro, you're blowing it, all right? You have, you have the opportunity here to do an important, a great show to to hear from this world-renowned expert. The, the better the question in general, all right, the, the more effective it is. But Stefan was so wordy, he would just go on and on. So we are going out now live across Twitter. We are now live across YouTube. We are going out live across Facebook and Rumble and Odyssey. Right? The whole gang is here. Facebook. It's been uh, New Year's Eve in, in Australia for 10 hours and 12 minutes. All right. It is now 10, 12 a.m. January 1st, 2023 in <laughs> <laughs> in Ten of Sands, Australia. Who is Stefan Molyneux? He he cucked on the JQ after the election and on COVID. Well, he, he was always uh, much more on the COVID skeptical uh, dissident side, which I don't think uh, speaks well of him. So I'm not someone with a strong opinion on, on Stefan Molyneux. Right? I'm, I'm like wide open to criticism of Stefan Molyneux. I'm wide open to praise of Stefan Molyneux. Uh, Stefan Molyneux, I take on a case by case basis. So yeah, he was never he was never a JQ dude. So I just finally did some research last night, like what the hell happened to Stefan Molyneux, and he has released a video called "The Untold Story of My Past Three Years." Like, ah, oh, this sounds good. I should be able to get a show out of this. The Untold Story of uh, Stefan Molyneux's Last three years, all right? I mean, this has got to be good. I mean, this has got to be more than just some kind of fundraising pitch, right? There's got to be some compelling quant- content here. Like, this is the untold story, right? This is behind the scenes. What's really gone on? Why haven't we heard from Stefan Molyneux in, in the public space for three years since he was deplatformed? Boy, I'm looking forward to this. 
ask you for your support. A couple of coffees a month can really make all the difference. Oh, yeah, I oh have plans stop, for the stop, next year stop, really stop, 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 stop. Explain to you stop. what it is that I've been up to for the last couple of years, the sort of purpose and plan and reasoning behind it, and I hope this will make some sense to you and give you a sense of perspective about what it is that I'm doing. So first and foremost, this has changed over the course of the show, but for the last couple of years, I've really been focusing on helping two groups of people. Number one, you. I'm going to help you. Number one is the people who are willing to think for themselves, to think critically, to act in a courageous but not suicidal manner, to bring virtue and evidence and reason and facts and good things to the world, to pursue virtuous relationships, to issue relentlessly negative or destructive or immoral relationships, and to really grow and enjoy the fruits of personal philosophical reasoning and virtue in your life. Those are the people I love, the people I... Oh, great. So... Apparently, over the past three years, he's been helping us by helping us let go of toxic relationships and uh, pursue goodness and truth. I mean, who can disagree with that, right? That's awesome. But I'm just like looking for some original content here. I'm not looking for a sales pitch. All right, come on, Stefan. Like, give me some original content, right? Treasure, and I'm sure you're one of those people. So that's one of the groups of people that I want to help. Now, the second group of people that I want to help. Unfortunately, well, they're not here yet. <laughs> it's going to take quite a while for them to show up. In the future, when they look back upon this cycle of history, you know, the cycle of history that uh, scarcity uh, leads to virtue, virtue leads to liberty, liberty leads to plenty, uh, plenty leads to decadence, decadence leads to decay, decay leads to collapse, and the whole cycle starts again. Over the last, oh gosh, um, six or seven years, I've really, really been focused on helping people in the future to understand how things got so bad Wow. So he's not just helping people in the present, right? He's not just changing lives, you know, transforming people away from falsehood into truth, leading lives of, of virtue, of, of clarity, uh, get, getting rid of, of toxic relationships. I mean, this sounds awesome, but uh, he's, he's, commit, he's creating for eternity. I mean, that's pretty awesome, creating for eternity. So the people in history, when they look at, look at his shows, it's kind of a, a time capsule into how, how did we get here? All right. Then, then look at Stefan Molyneux shows. Is he still defooing? Yes. That's where he recommends people. If you have, you know, if you feel like your family is bad for you, if your family is having a negative effect on your life, then just cut all ties and move on. And I absolutely think there, there are occasions when if, if, you know, your family is dangerous for your health, if your family is really objectively bad for you, then yeah, there's certainly times to, to cut ties. But the the number of stories I've heard about people who took Stefan's advice and, and cut ties where it doesn't sound like it was really necessary. So I don't think you should cut ties with your family if it doesn't lead to human flourishing. All right. We're going to talk about human flourishing more later on. So to me, that's not strong enough argument for completely cutting ties with your family. I, I am, generally speaking, much more in favor of more sophisticated dialing people up or down. So instead of cutting ties with your family, if you find them particularly troublesome or a negative, negative influence in your life, maybe reduce the number of times that you see your family, maybe reduce the intensity with which you interact with your family. Maybe you don't pour your heart out to your family if they, you feel like they're just constantly demeaning you. Uh, maybe reduce the length of time that you spend together and maybe reduce the proximity. So maybe you have more phone calls instead of meeting in person. Maybe you have more emails instead of Zooms. 
So I think a more sophisticated approach is a superior approach. From such a state of freedom and to give the facts, the data, the reason, the evidence, and the philosophical analysis of everything that went wrong. So, Wow, he is so glib. I mean, I'm playing him at 1.25 and that's a mistake. I'm sorry, I, I failed you. I should just play this guy at, at 1x. So no, kind of so blown away by the self-promotion here. Now that I've got the technical stuff right, let me let me try him again from the beginning. Groups of people. Number one, you. I'm going to help you. Number one is the people. So this is kind of an unusual approach for talking to people on the internet. That I'm here to help you. It's just a little too on the nose. There's no sense of irony. It's like Google calling itself you know, the search engine machine. Now it called itself Google. It's just, that's just, just too on the nose. It just doesn't seem quite right. Uh, it's just a little too earnest and unironic. Who are willing to think for themselves, to think critically, to act in a courageous, but not suicidal manner to bring virtue and evidence and reason and facts and good things to the world to pursue okay so who's not in favor of virtue evidence uh, bravery right? Th this is so bland this is so generic that any any youtuber in his genre can say the exact same things so it, it just completely lacks all like real world specificity i mean i'm afraid that this update on you know the hidden story of his past three years i'm afraid this is just going to turn into a fundraising appeal with zero real content virtuous relationships to issue relentlessly negative or destructive or immoral so what are virtuous relationships what are immoral relationships what are destructive relationships maybe some specifics would help maybe maybe for those of us who don't listen to stefan day in day out like maybe tell us what you tend to bring to things so what the hell do I tend to bring to my YouTube live streams? Uh, I think I'm equally distant from both the distant, dissident, and the mainstream perspective. I'm equally dis distant from the populist and the elitist perspective. So I, I do a show largely about distant perspectives, but I'm not here to endorse or detract from distant perspectives. I think some of the time they're right and some of the time the, the mainstream right, some of the time the elites are right, some of the time the, the populists are right. I think that this show is different because to the best of my knowledge, it's the only distant podcast where the host is a happy guy who comes to this show with a sense of gratitude for all the good things in life, not just from his family and not just from his friends, but from our societies, right? The Australian government, the American government, the English government, these are all flawed, but they are better than average. Our elites are flawed, but they're better than average. Our you know, freedom of speech is, is flawed, but it's, it's better than average in the world. So I have a sense of the, the good things that we have going on in our system, in our economic system, our media system. The, the, there are good things that the mainstream media does in addition to the bad things. So it seems to me, my... My perspective is that almost every other dissident comes to these productions with a sense of, I was screwed over. I deserve a much more prestigious place. Uh, my life has been repressed and suppressed and persecuted that people don't understand me. 
that only I can see clearly what's really going on, that I'm the, the courageous truth teller and you know my problems are not my fault, they're the problems of wider society. Uh, things are hopeless, but I'm going to keep on trying here. Uh, I just notice so much in the distance fear when, when everything happens, often the, the lens of interpretation, oh, see how useless it is, see how the elites are just screwing us over. There's just, there's no hope. I mean, there's just this conspiracy theory against us. Right? That's kind of the, the huge chip on the shoulder that I notice with almost every other distant streamer. And I don't think I bring that to the show. So also a diverse life experience grew up Seventh-day Adventist converted to Orthodox Judaism and uh, many, many years of chronic illness, which helps you to appreciate some things that uh, people who haven't spent years in bed perhaps don't. Relationships and to really grow and enjoy the fruits of personal philosophical reasoning and virtue in your life. Those are the people I love, the people I that's just so generic. That's just any guru, any live streamer, you know, any idiot can say those words. They, they just mean absolutely nothing without examples. It's great to make generalizations. It's great to propose theories. I love theories. I love generalizations. I love stereotypes. But the complete lack of specific examples, in, in particular, like what does he bring that uh, other people perhaps don't bring, right? So, for example, I think I'm a really good interviewer. I also think that I strive imperfectly in a very flawed fashion to optimize for truth. So I don't primarily optimize these live streams to provoke outrage, to say that the right wing is always right, uh, to optimize to make me feel good, to make you feel good. I don't optimize for, for viewership. I optimize for, in my own flawed, you know, damaged way this stream is primarily about seeking truth, whether it's good for the, the populace or for the elites, whether it's good for the right or the left. Right? That's, that's a specific example. So during, during COVID, I didn't automatically assume that government and public health officials were lying to us. I didn't automatically assume that they were telling us the truth. I've just kind of been in the middle there between the distant and the mainstream perspectives. And uh, I'm all on board with vaccines. So to me, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming that it's better for most people to get the COVID vaccine than to not get the COVID vaccine. And the other vaccines that are recommended by public health authorities, I also think that it's good to get those. I was very ambivalent about COVID vaccination mandates, and I think there was such a backlash to COVID vaccine mandates that those COVID vaccine mandates ended up doing a lot more harm than good. So a lot of the time when government tries to mandate stuff, it creates a backlash that does more harm than good. And I think that is an example that uh, there's been now being such a, a backlash against vaccines in general, which stems in part from the government trying to mandate the COVID vaccines. I think on balance that the lockdowns were a better idea than a bad idea, but I'm open to being wrong. I think many aspects of, of the lockdowns were misjudged, but uh yeah, on balance right now, I think the lockdowns were, were better than not, but uh, open to be open to being shown I was wrong, and it, you know it's not going to bother me psychologically if my predisposition that it seemed like yeah with this influenza out of control, uh, maybe some social distancing is a good idea. That that was that's my predisposition, but you know if I got it wrong, I got it wrong. I don't care. My self esteem does not depend on it. Treasure, and I'm sure you're one of those people. So that's one of the groups of people that I want to help.
Now, the second group of people that I want to help, unfortunately, well, they're not here yet. And it's going to take. And yeah, I, I think I played on this show Stefan Molyneux instruct a 17 year old to cut off completely from, from his parents after just hearing the boy's side of the story. So I'd like to think that I. I bring a sense on this show that I'm only hearing you know, one side of the story or I only know so much about a particular topic. So a sense of epistemic humility, you know, a sense of, you know, how much do I really know? Uh, I, I think I'm a little less eager to buy into particular narratives of grievance, narratives of resentment. Now, every in-group has narratives of grievance and narratives of resentment. So, Given that I belong to certain in-groups, I'm a convert to Orthodox Judaism, I'm someone who loves Australia, I'm someone who loves America, I'm a live streamer, I'm right-wing, so I belong to various in-groups, and to belong to any in-group, you have to have a narrative of grievance, right? There's no in-group identity without grievance. But I'd like to think that my grievance intensity is probably about 02 so it's not at 0.5, which is moderately intense, and certainly not at 0.9. But I like to think I have a relatively low level of grievance. Also, you can't look at anything objectively and fairly if you hold that thing sacred. So I think perhaps this is a unique part of this show is that I oscillate between seeing things as sacred and stepping outside of seeing things as sacred. So I believe in God. I believe that God gave the Torah, but I'm absolutely willing to engage with the other side, to step aside from that belief, look at things in purely naturalistic or academic terms. So when I I hold things as sacred, obviously I can't see them clearly and I can't judge them objectively, but I can also step outside my intense in-group identity and try to see things as an objective, you know, third party might, might see things. So I think there is the sense of the sacred, that there are things that I hold sacred in this show, but I'd like to think that I'm able certainly at times to be able to step outside what I hold to be sacred to try to discuss them objectively, whether it's with an atheist, a Muslim, a Christian, a Jew, whoever we've had, you know, a whole panoply of guests. And I think that the kind of discussions we have on here are so robust because many of us are able to varying degrees set aside what we think is sacred to you know, more fully engage with people with different perspectives. Take quite a while for them to show up. In the future, when they look back upon this cycle of history, you know, the cycle of history that uh, scarcity uh, leads to virtue, virtue leads to liberty, liberty leads to plenty, uh, plenty leads to decadence, decadence leads to decay, decay leads to collapse, and the whole cycle starts again. Over the last, oh gosh, um, six or seven years, I've really, really been focused on helping people in the future to understand how things got so bad from such a state of freedom and to give the facts, the data, the reason, the evidence, the philosophical analysis of everything that went wrong so with the grace of our integrity, the future can find... Okay, so that just seems like such a massive amount of overconfidence in one's own abilities. I, I would like to believe I could never say these things. It, it, it just seems such like a massive overstatement. It just seems like such a massive overconfidence in, in one's own abilities. It just seems absolutely 
bizarre. So, I mean, how how does how does this strike you? You know, Stefan Molyneux. Uh, uh, it just it, it seems the level of overconfidence here seems to verge into the pathological. But I'm curious what what your perspective is. You know, given that reality is so complicated that we can only get the glimmerings of what's really going on. That, that our perspectives are so shot filled with, with delusions, with our own nonsense, with our own flaws, uh, to, to you know, make, make these statements as Stefan does seems, yeah, it seems pathological to me or almost pathological. Finally be free of such a destructive cycle. So the minority people... In- I don't think you can ever be free of, of such a cycle. Let me... Here's the challenge with doing this show. I'm reading your comments and I'm trying to listen to Stefan and the more attention I pay to your comments, all right, then then the less attention I'm paying to Stefan and then the less room I have in my, my space to, to say anything. So let me just run through, let me just run through the, the chat. Yeah, Stefan Molyneux already speaks at double speed so I can play him at 1.0. Luke Ford's reasonable, responsible, moderate thinking that he is summarizing right now is a particular strong point of his. Thank you for the feedback. Does Fordy have me on mute because he dissed the Daniel Goldhagen box? No need to mute Fordy. Just read the Daniel Goldhagen if you dare, especially. Okay, so no, you're, you're not on mute. But it's interesting how when when one perceives that one's being persecuted or one's being muted or one's being blocked when it's not even happening, all right, you can see the the uh, the pathological lens, like always ready to interpret everything through a victimization and a persecution complex. Just trying to make a live stream and streaming the best I can. I, I was watching the 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 college football playoffs, but uh, pretty shocked to see TCU just absolutely smashing Michigan. So I thought, what the hell. I've got these ideas rambling around in my mind. Let's just go live. There's no, there's no benefit to to watching TCU further destroy Michigan. In the present, who welcome? No, I I need to replay. I I don't get this. Um, Six or seven years, I've really, really been focused on helping people in the future to understand how things got so bad from such a state of freedom, and to give the facts, the data, the reason, the evidence. How things got so bad from such a state of freedom. So we're now I'm in 2023. You may still be in 2022, but these people that think that things are so bad now, do they have no sense of proportion? Right there, I presume there are people starving in the world. There are people being tortured and raped in the world. That life in Australia, England, France, Germany, the United States, Canada, for all its problems. Is, is better than the 99% of humanity have, have ever experienced. So this idea that things are so bad now and that there was this Edenic, like Garden of Eden-like past where things were just so free. Now, in some ways, life is better now than it was in the 1950s. I would say in terms of personal morality and, and group morality and national morality, yeah, 1950s better th- than now. But 
there are plenty of ways that life is better now in 2022. There are plenty of ways that life is better in 1950. So I neither glorify the past nor glorify the future, don't crap on the present. But I notice this also with distant streamers. They just talk about how awful things are now. And it's very common on the distant right to say that, you know, we're living in the, the equivalent of the Soviet Union, which just strikes me as absolutely absurd. Right for all the imperfections in our quality of life and in our rights and in our freedoms, right for all the the imperfections that we have in 2022, nothing comes close to the levels of repression that uh, people experienced in in the Soviet Union. The philosophical analysis of everything that went wrong. So, with the grace of our integrity, the future can finally be free of such a destructive cycle. So, by the grace of our integrity, the future can finally be free of such a destructive cycle. This is completely disconnected from reality. We we have no rational basis for being so sure of all these assertions that uh, Stepan Molyneux was just retailing. I mean, this sounds like some sales pitch. Uh, there's, there's no content here except to say that I'm pathological. Like, I have completely lost touch with my own limitations. Like, I don't see myself accurately, right? They, you know, there's probably 14-year-olds who, who could watch this, this stream and see me more accurately than, than I see myself. Like, I, you know, consistently misstate things from the chat. I take things out of context. I, I read the very opposite meaning into what someone states in the chat to what they actually uh, are saying. I... And that's not unique to me. I mean, that's just part of being human. We're all, you know, flawed creatures. We all, you know, do not see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And so Stefan's just breathtaking assertions here. Yeah, this strikes me as uh, verging on the pathological. The minority of people in the present who welcome reason and can live reason in their lives and we can't live reason in our lives. We can only live you know, a little bit of reason in our lives. We are driven by our instincts. We are driven by our hormone levels. We are driven by social cues. Right? Most of what we think we know, most of what we think we believe, most of what we think we stand for, most of what we think is unique with us, the, the language that we use, the stories that we tell, we inherit from our community. It's not unique to us. So I have outside of my habitual community right now. And so all the social reinforcement I get about, you know, the Torah being divided, the importance of keeping the Sabbath, the importance of keeping uh, the laws of kosher, the importance of, you know, davening three times a day, like all the social reinforcement that I get from living in an Orthodox community, I don't have right now. And so that whole type of meaning and, and structure of living, I'm outside of that. I, I'm very close to taking a moral holiday. You know what a moral holiday is? I just read about it in a review of The White Lotus, which is a thoughtful, very slow-moving HBO series. And a moral ho holiday is when you, you, you go away on holiday, but you also go away from your habitual mores. So moral holiday is when you use being away from your home to essentially explore your, your sexual desires. So... It's, it's very easy when you don't get the social reinforcement, the, the group monitoring that happens when you live within a close-knit 
in-group community to uh, go on a moral holiday to you know, start getting lax. Oh, here's, here's ex examples where I'm getting lax. I've been eating ice cream almost every day that I've been here. I don't normally do that. Uh, I've been eating dessert, you know, almost every day that I'm here. I was eating cookies and cake. Okay, I'm eating all sorts of crap that I normally would not eat in my fairly, you know, disciplined, regular life back in Los Angeles. But I guess, yeah, in a sense, I'm taking a moral holiday. I am pretty much doing what I want. I'm watching the sporting events that I want to watch. I'm you know, reading the books, the articles. I'm just largely just doing what I want because... Yeah, I guess to an extent, I'm taking a moral holiday. Still, no fat. I'm resisting the allure of the aloe vera. But uh, I do, I do know what that's like to to you know feel the temptations of the moral holiday. When I remember flying to Montreal, Canada, and you know being in a hotel room and you know having having so much freedom, right? And the lure of taking a moral holiday. Like I have never ordered, procured, paid for, you know, had sex with, you know, with a hooker in my life, but, you know, I kind of feel the temptation when you're in a strange city and like the, the, the habitual things that, that regulate and discipline you are removed. So it's just now you and your, your id and your ego and alone in the, in the hotel room. So if you've traveled, particularly traveled on your, by yourself and people don't recognize you, right? There's, uh, you know, there's a whole new level of feeling. I, I find that I think different thoughts. I feel different feelings. I tell different stories. I, I see the world differently when I change my location. So let's have a look at the chat. Uh, with YouTube shadow banning shtick and the like, it can be quite reasonable to be suspicious about being uh, shadow banned and muted. Right. So there's a lot of censorship of the chat that YouTube does that I am not doing to you. What do I think of Benedict's death? So he seemed to be a highly intelligent man. Uh, the media portrayal is that he did, did not do enough vis-a-vis -vis child sexual abuse. Uh, I, possible schism in the church. I think the Roman Catholic Church will, will continue. It's not going to be a schism like uh, what happened in the 13th century. Uh, Pope Benedict was a fighter in a way that uh, no other pope in, in recent memory has, has really been a fighter for the, the traditional Christian outlook. Uh, even perhaps a bit of a fighter against Islam. So there's this kind of widespread sense of Christians as cucks are just being meek and mild and, and not fighting back when when the world is steadily encroaching on what, what you would think Christians would hold sacred and holy. So Benedict was an exception among a whole long line of essentially meek and mild popes. I, so I don't think that uh, the church is going to split on, on birth control. Things are bad, but we can work together as nationalists to make it better. Yeah, but you, you'll be most effective if you're in reality. And so to be in reality is to say some things are bad, some things are good, some things are hard to understand 
but to just take the perspective that things are bad, I don't think you're living in reality. There is a lack of gratitude for the good things in your country, in your government, in your elites, in your financial system, in your media system, right? We have to keep a sense of perspective, have a sense of gratitude for what's good, and also clarity about what's what's missing and what's bad. What percentage of nominal Catholics pay much, if any, attention to doctrine on conception, masturbation, fornication? Uh, well under 10% in the United States, probably well under 10% in the first world. Yes, from an objective perspective, not, not a religious perspective, uh, masturbation, depending on circumstance and situation, can either be adaptive or maladaptive. Uh, what would I say to the, to, the, to the male or the female who is like hideously deformed or psychologically deformed or deformed by circumstances in life where there's absolutely no chance they have of, of marriage or sexual relations with another person? You know, am I going to completely condemn them from you know, any any journey into providing self-joy. Put a fence around the Torah 40, swap out the aloe vera for the sandpaper, remove temptation. Well, it's not temptation because I've achieved a level of recovery in that area right this minute where I would recoil from onanism as I would a hot stove. So there are... There are self-destructive things that I'm prone to, such as giving my opinion where it's not needed, uh, saying offensive things, uh, provoking people unnecessarily, right? offending people unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. So there are all sorts of things that I'm highly susceptible to that are not good. But uh, that one, not much of a challenge. It's a beautiful life when you live reason. You're surrounded by uh, love and, and loyalty. It's a beautiful life when you live reason. That's... That's just absurd. We can never live reason. We're driven right, by, by hormones, by instincts, by our social construction of reality, by the, the cues that we're getting. Uh, we're, we're not capable of just reasoning everything out in, in some kind of strategic fashion. We can bring some of that into our life, but he's, he's kind of understating the, the realm of, of the body and the body's imperious urges which are not just for sex, but for self-assertion, for, for, for various forms of pleasure, for satisfying appetites, for getting along with other people. And, and beauty in your life. So thank you uh, to people who are taking that message and living in their own lives. Help you. Helping the future. I mean, I wrote a whole book last year uh, called The Future, which is my vision of what it is that we're working to try and achieve a future where children are peacefully parented where coercive institutions are absent and voluntary and therefore virtuous i never thought that i was sexually compulsive or sexually addicted because you know i never stayed home from from work or from you know, the, the normal appointments of daily life to, you know, engage in onanistic activities. Like I never got close to the type of uh, behavior which would get you arrested. But I had an over-preoccupation with the matters sexual, and so that kind of distorted the way that I was experiencing participating in life. And so rationally I saw, yeah, I'm, I'm not an addict. But there was 
there was kind of a truth about things that were driving me that was beyond the rational. Also, my, my drive for your admiration, right? That, that's narcissism, a grandiose sense of entitlement, a large desire for other people's admiration. That also has tremendously distorted my life. I was like always raising my hand, always very eager to share my opinions in, in class, uh, you know, constantly trying to manipulate situations that I was in to generate the maximum of attention. So this, this disabling level of narcissism was leaving me lonely, isolated, unwanted, hated. And then because I was socially dislocated, then I would have to solve the pain with fantasy, which would often be, you know, grandiose fantasies about my own talents and abilities and ambitions or sexual fantasies and use of pornography or the use of, you know, chasing women. So these were things that were beyond the power of my reason to to detect. I, I would see at times, I'd get glimmerings. I'd wake up at 2 a.m. again, my life is going in the wrong direction. I had so many painful, like, 2 a.m. realizations. I don't get those anymore. Or, or the intensity is only, like, 5 or, or 10% of, of what it used to be. So these were destructive compulsions that I had that, that were beyond the realm of my reason to fully, properly understand. I would just get kind of glimmerings that there's something wrong here. And I don't think the, I'm the only person who has all these compulsions and drives and you know, misplaced priorities to have instincts out, out of whack. So it's a good idea to be safe financially, but if you're such a miser that other people hate being around you, that's an instinct out of control. It's a good idea to want to feel physically safe but if you never go out and socialize and just stay home all the time because you so need to be physically safe, again, that's an instinct out of control. It's a good idea to want love and sex in your life. But if you, you know, pursue that to the detriment of all your other needs, then, then that's an instinct out of control. It's a nice thing to want to be admired, to be thought well of by other people, but you can do absurd things online to try to get admiration and, that can operate to the detriment of your other needs. So we, when we get these basic instincts out of control, we don't always comprehend what's going on through, through the power of our reason. What, what I found most useful was human connection. When I would connect with somebody or with a community, my kind of my internal alarm system would calm down and then I would have less need to act out by, you know, grandiose assertions of attention seeking or, you know, bizarre and excessive preoccupations with, with you know, seducing women, I would calm down. And as I calmed down, then I developed better relations with other people. As I developed better relations with other people, the more I would calm down, the better the choices I would make. So we're not wired. We're not optimized for, for happiness. Uh, Matt Brown from Decoding the Gurus made this profound point. We are wired for survival. And so we are wired to have excessive amounts of fear and anxiety because people with high amounts of fear and anxiety, they were better able to see threats and, and danger. And so they were able to stay alive and propagate their genes. But we're not wired for, for happiness. We're wired to be excessively anxious and fearful, just constantly you know, head on a swivel, on alert for, for things that you know, might disrupt our lives. But this doesn't make for clarity when you try to examine what's going on in the world. This is, this is like, you know, hyper amounts of fear and arousal. There are some adaptive 
circumstances where it is adaptive to have you know high amounts of fear and arousal but if you're in Tenem Sands or if you're in a safe place, you're a good place, you're with good people, then having this excessive amounts of fear and anxiety is obviously uh, maladaptive. Interactions are the norm. But how are we going to get there if we can't explain what happened here? So I want to help you break any cycle of dysfunction you have in your own personal life at the moment, and I want to help the world and society. He wants to help you break any cycle of dysfunction that you have in your life. Okay, that's a lovely desire, but does he really think that he can help you break any cycle of dysfunction that you have in your life? I would think someone who is more rooted in reality would say, for certain people in certain situations, I can help you with certain dysfunctions. I can help move you in a direction that would likely be more adaptive than maladaptive for you. But this idea that he's going to help you overcome any dysfunction and that he can diagnose society in the same way that he can diagnose individuals just strikes me as so absurdly grandiose. It's completely out of touch with reality. Society as a whole to break the cycle of history that has been gripping the jugular of our species since time immemorial. And I honestly believe that we've cracked the nut with UPB, with the bomb in the brain, child abuse series, and and uh, all of the visions and values of personal integrity that we see around the world as part of the show and other things. I think that's enough, right? We can be, you don't need an entire star, a sky full of stars to navigate to the future by. You just need a few instances. And I think that we're providing those instances. And in this way, we bless the future as much as it can be blessed. So I was thinking of a, you know, the last couple of years, I mean, as you know, I got started, uh, I started getting seriously deplatformed about three, a little bit more than three years ago. And uh, this is a great topic. This is what you should be talking about, what it's like to be seriously deplatformed, you know, removed from the national conversation. Like This is where I like some introspection. The title is promising us the untold story of the last three years. So what it's like to go from speaking to an audience of millions to speaking to an audience of, of thousands. My father suffered when he moved out of the Seventh-day Adventist church, like his his audiences you know, dropped to about 5-10% of what they were. That took a huge toll on him. Also, he became much more isolated, so he became much more unhappy. Uh, but he wasn't willing to reach a compromise with the church unless it was on his terms. So my father's happiness level significantly declined after 1980, after he was moved from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And so if you're getting much of your meaning and sustenance and purpose in life from having a large audience, then the removal of that audience will provoke tremendous pain and internal dislocation. So I was just curious how he, he dealt with that and how he fought through it. Now, there are some positive sides to the inevitable depression that would come from you know, losing an audience of millions. And there, there are three you know, adaptive uses of depression. You stop doing the things that you habitually do so you can rethink your efforts, so you can choose how to direct your energy in a more useful uh, direction. You can plan out uh, new new ways of living, make, make new choices, and you can plan them out and you can think about what, what would be the, the repercussions if I did this or about this. So stopping your habitual endeavors and taking a pause, which usually happens with, with a depression, right? That's frequently a completely adaptive response that doesn't need you know, a medical terminology, it doesn't need a medical diagnosis, it doesn't need, need a psychiatric medication, 
right? If you have suffered an, a substantial loss and losing an audience, if you're if your 40-hour-a-week, 50-hour-a-week job is speaking to a large audience, then that audience is taken away and most of your income is taken away. That is a significant loss. The, it would be a normal adaptive response to not mourn that for weeks, even months. Right. If you're still mourning it five, ten years later, then we're talking about a maladaptive response. But to kind of go into a type of hibernation, rethink things, right, this is a fruitful time for introspection, seeing you know, what, what you can learn from the experience. Where did you go wrong? And how you, you don't repeat that going future. You plan out new direction for your energies and efforts going forward. So that could be the pause that refreshes. And that's what I wanted to hear from Stefan. Of course, it's a, it's been a tough ride. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to put on any fault. I don't have any regrets. I, I'm. It was necessary to, if this, is, if this was the price of getting the truth out to save the future, I am absolutely happy and willing to, pay that price and to bear that burden because all the things that I enjoy were the result of people in the past paying a price and bearing a burden to hand down some baton of liberty or capacity for speech that we still enjoy to a large degree today. So it's been a tough trade, but a trade that is absolutely, completely and totally worth it. Okay. doesn't sound really like this undergone that much introspection or whatever introspection he's undergone he's certainly not sharing it here it's just i'm here carrying on the baton of liberty and everything i did was worth it i mean that's a letdown with a title like you know the untold story of, of my last three years and it's just like i'm carrying on the baton of liberty liberty means so many different things to different people so the complete lack of, of specifics of concrete examples uh, just makes this such a useless video. The, the the grandiosity. Come on, Stefan, I was hoping for more. And I've been thinking about sort of, okay, and I ask myself this every day, what value am I providing and am I keeping the faith? Am I keeping the faith? Am I living with integrity? Am I... Am I keeping the faith in what? All right, so... You're talking about living reasonably, and then you're think, saying talk, living, keeping the faith. These are opposite things. If you are keeping the faith, you are not primarily living rationally. If you are living rationally, you are not keeping the faith. So choose. You can't be keeping the faith and living rationally. These are two separate domains. There are two very different ways of living. So it would have been so nice if you like, gave some examples of what the hell he's, he's talking about here. Am I pursuing the truth in a courageous but not suicidal fashion? Am I keeping the faith with the values of philosophy and would I be willing to stand anywhere in the pantheon of people I admire in history? The values of philosophy. Philosophy doesn't have values. Uh, one philosopher values ABC, another philosopher values DEF. A third philosopher devalues all of those things and values something else. I mean, this is just gibberish, mumbo-jumbo, uh, grandiosity, completely disconnected from reality. It's like saying, oh, am I living the values of theology? Whose theology? Theology in and of itself does not have values. You have to specify whose theology, whose philosophy are you living? You say you're keeping the faith. Which faith are you keeping? Right? Faith, by definition, is not uh, you know, rationality. It's a different category. So, you know, tell us about that faith, how it separates from your commitment to reason, 
that would be interesting. You may be a better judge of this than I am, but I am satisfied that I have kept the faith. I've kept the faith with philosophy. I've kept the faith with... There's, there's no faith with philosophy. That's just meaningless terms. It's like, I've kept the faith with economics. I've kept the faith with cricket. It's just, it's just pablum. And it's so self-satisfied. He's absolutely satisfied that, you know, he's done everything right, that he's carrying on the baton of faith and rationality and philosophy and truth and goodness. And he's here to help you, you know, remove every dysfunction in your life. And he's here to diagnose every dysfunction in society. With my mission and my goal. And I think, I hope, I believe that I've kept the faith with you as well. Because I know you put a lot of trust in me to do the right thing and say the right thing and, and all of that. And Whoa, I, I know you put a lot of trust in me. So he's talking he's talking like his audience is a cult. That they that they have have to have faith in him. Like to the extent that people put a lot of trust in Stefan Molyneux, it's that he you know, tills certain soil that he's known for tilling, that, that he said certain things, that he sheds light on certain issues where you feel like he's got a good track record. I, I mean, I, I just can't imagine uh, talking this way to, to, my, to my audience, and I can't imagine him talking this way to his audience. I, I mean, if people really have all this faith in him, faith in him for what? All right, we don't, generally speaking, have faith in people. We have faith. Okay, I have faith in Steve Smith as a batsman for Australia that he has a test cricket average of 60 runs every time like he steps to the, to the wicket, right? So I have faith that uh, Steve Smith is a pretty good run-getter in, in test cricket, uh, but I, I have no reason to have any faith in his level of acumen with regard to biology or geology or, or economics. So faith with regard to what, or it's meaningless. And I believe, with all my heart, and I'm happy to be corrected if I've gone astray, but I believe that I have in general, in an honorable way, kept the faith with virtue, with truth, with philosophy, with the future, and with you, my dear listener. So I, I He's keeping the faith with truth, with philosophy, with the future, and with you, the dear listener. This is just absolute pablum. He can't give one example of what he's talking about. He, he he just refuses to touch specifics. Thank you for the support to be able to do that. I mean, obviously, I've done other helpful things. I have, uh, of course, ex explicated the effects of child abuse to millions of people. There are millions and millions and millions of children around the world over the course of this show. Oh, wait, are there millions and millions and millions of children around the world during the course of this show? Who are no longer getting hit uh, and who are being reasoned with rather than brutalized. And that is a great gift to the world in the future and, of course, to the children. He's saying that, is he saying what I think he's saying, that millions of children are not being abused because of his teachings? First of all, there's, there's no terminology like child abuse until the 1960s. And child abuse as a term is virtually useless because now it is being extended to anything that a, a parent or a grown-up does that is not conducive to the child's flourishing. How's your human flourishing these days? Did, did your parents do absolutely everything 
that was necessary for your flourishing. Because if they didn't do everything that you needed to flourish in this world, then you were a victim of child abuse, right? That is a major contemporary meaning of the term child abuse. It has just been escalated to cover you know, virtually every child. No, now it's been escalated to cover every single child is a victim of child abuse. Why would this industry escalate the meaning of child abuse so that every child is a victim of child abuse for the same reason that psychiatrists escalate every you know, human struggle as something requiring a medical diagnosis and frequently medicine because it extends these activists' uh, power, prestige, money-making abilities, right? So child abuse is just, the, the term has just been extended and extended and extended, right? So the, the term no longer has any, any real-world meaning. It's just another way for activists to try to get money and power and prestige by essentially trying to make the case that everybody was abused in childhood. And parents in the present. And for that, I'm eternally grateful to everybody who's listened and everybody who supported what it is. Well, he is saying, right, he is saying that he has prevented millions of children from being abused. Right? That's delusion. Why else would he be grateful to people who listen for, for what he just said? Am I completely misreading this? Let me, let me replay. Listener. So I, I thank you for the support to be able to do that. I mean, obviously, I've done other helpful things. I have, uh, of course, ex explicated the effects of child abuse to millions of people. There are millions and millions and millions of children around the world over the course of the show who are no longer getting hit uh, and who are being reasoned with rather than brutalized. And that is a great gift to the world in the future and, of course, to the children and parents in the present, and for that I'm eternally grateful to everybody who's listened and everybody who supported what it is that I do. I mean, in a more practical sense, I said right at the beginning of COVID that it was going to be a huge deal, and of course I'd covered Ebola and things like that before. So I okay, then he goes on to say very skeptical things about the response to COVID, which will get me in trouble with terms of service of various social media companies. So he, from his own self-description, was pretty much a garden-variety skeptic of the mainstream uh, public health response to COVID. And as social media, the main social media companies have restricted us from even you know, allowing a voice to skeptics of the public health response to COVID. I really can't play you what he's about to say, but you can, you can picture it in your mind, the, the negative things that he's gonna say about lockdowns and other public health responses to COVID. And then he just goes on to ask for money. So, absolutely useless video when I was I genuinely had an interest in what's been going on with Stefan Molyneux for the past three years he creates a video with the title that he's going to tell me the untold story of the past three years he just just completely blows it so let's uh, check out someone who doesn't blow it this is 40 in March of 2012 I remember we'd say that anyone got too enthusiastic oh he's raving like a yank that's where I'm from. It's kind of a reserved British-type Protestant-influenced country. And I was also raised as a Seventh-day Adventist and a preacher's kid. So Seventh-day Adventists are Protestants. They're reserved. They're nice. They're not grubby and grasping and worldly ambitious. So Seventh-day Adventists suffer nothing akin to anti-Semitism. There's not this widespread anti-Adventist movement out in the world that wants to murder Adventists. 
So whenever I went to a church, there was never a security guard outside, and you never had to uh, get patted down for weapons or explosives or things like that. So Adventist theology believes in fearing national Sunday laws and believes in fearing the persecution of the time of the end, but they have no empirical reason as Adventists to fear anyone hurting them in the here and now for being Adventists. So I'm watching the apprenticeship of Daddy Kravitz, and it starts to make sense of much of my Jewish experience. So Daddy Kravitz is about a working-class Jewish kid in Montreal, and he uh, rises to power using some rather grubby means. So that made me think, yeah, most of the Jews I've known have been polite Jews. They're professionals, doctors, lawyers, accountants, dentists, college professors, teachers. And they're concerned with how the wider non-Jewish society views them. And uh, so they're very concerned about how Jews come across Jewish image to to non-Jews. And uh, they're what I'll call the polite Jews. Now, until I started going to a Hasidic shul, I'd never attended a synagogue where everyone didn't go to college. But if I go to a Hasidic shul, like I'll meet Jewish plumbers. I'd never met Jewish plumbers before. I didn't know they even existed. I wasn't used to Jews with muscles who did manual labor. So all the other shuls I went to, which were mainly modern, orthodox, conservative, reform, everybody went to college. They were professionals, doctors, lawyers, etc. And they were concerned with how the Goyim viewed them. Now, when I was growing up, there was no phrase like, what would the non-Adventists think? Like, we weren't really obsessed with how the majority of society viewed us. Now, a big part of me loves the street and getting dirty, so for two years during college, I worked construction, and I worked landscaping, and I liked getting dirty. And I moved to Los Angeles in 1994, and I started sniffing around Hollywood, and eventually I started chronicling LA's dirtiest parts, such as the porn industry. Here I met a very different type of Jew. There's one not concerned with the acceptance and approval of the wider Christian society, one not afraid to get dirty to traffic in human flesh and drugs and organized crime and the like. So a Daddy Kravitz type of Jew. So the polite Jews, who are the majority Jews, in, in my understanding, generally scorn the dirty, grubby, grasping Jews who are you know, trafficking in human flesh and you know, doing very morally dubious things and illegal things and working with organized crime, money laundering, etc. So I know this because by immersing myself among the dirty Jews to chronicle them, I've become a dirty Jew in many eyes of polite Jews. So I guess I'll never really be upstanding and polite. No, I'm, I'm grubby. On the other hand, I've never been comfortable with grubbing or grasping for money. I think that's part of my heritage, my Protestant reserved heritage. My father's got two PhDs, so that kind of academic heritage, being a preacher's kid, we don't chase money. So, many of my friends are modern Orthodox Jews. They're the polite Jews, generally. They're part of wider society. They're concerned about how non-Jews view them. And there are the Hasidic Jews, the you know, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, and ironically, the porn Jews and the Hollywood Jews and, you know, Jews who traffic in very dubious and quasi-legal or outright illegal enterprises. And these type of Jews don't care so much about the opinion of the wider society. They're mainly concerned with their own little world and getting what they want. They're not concerned what the Goyim would think. So I'm very attracted to both groups of Jews. I'm not sure which 
group I most belong in. I do like it in the gutter, but I don't want to live there. Now, as the street Jew who will chew gum while he's making a video, like a polite Jew would never do this. They'd be more concerned with their image. Stop, stop. Okay, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. <laughs> So anyway, there are some notes on this video that I want to uh, discuss. So I made that video back in March, I believe, March 7 of 2012. And so I had some notes here. I was listening to Dennis Prager's radio show, and he just returned from his fifth trip to Australia. And uh, he concluded Australia was overregulated. So there's not the same emphasis on freedom in Australia that you have in, in America. So from, from an American perspective, we'll see very much that uh, Australians are overregulated. You also are struck by how reserved Australians are. So Australia is much more Anglo-Saxon than, than America. And this American woman finds into Prager's show. She says, Australians are reserved. They are timid. Now, I don't think timid is the word. I think reserved is the word. When I lived there, she said, I had to change my own enthusiasm. When you're enthused about something, they shut you down. Even when you're feeling good, they make you aware of how you speak. When you live there as an American, you have to turn yourself down. I cannot be myself. That, that seems accurate. Australians are reserved and they're kind of suspicious by enthusiasm, particularly American enthusiasm. So when I have lived in Australia, I remember we would say about anyone who got particularly enthusiastic, oh, he's raving like a yank. So Americans tend to be much more expressive of their emotions than Australians. Okay, you're probably wondering what, what amazing insights does uh, Forty have for us now? Right. This is from the podcast, If Books Could Kill, David Brooks, Bobos in Paradise. To draw the contrast. So he talks about the page from 1950. Of course, it was all like pedigreed people. And I guess it would mention when your ancestors arrived in America. Okay. <laughs> Apparently the women's jobs were never mentioned or like they didn't have jobs. Yeah, that was disqualifying if the woman had a job. It's just kind of like a snapshot of where the ruling class was in 1950, right? Uh -huh. And then he contrasts this with a bunch of wedding announcements from 1998. So I'm going to send you another abysmally long excerpt from this. All right. The couples tell a little of their own story in these articles. An amazing number of them seem to have first met while recovering from marathons or searching for the remnants of Pleistocene man while on archaeological digs in Eritrea. They usually enjoyed a long and careful romance, including joint vacations in obscure but educational places like Myanmar and Minsk. Many of the couples broke up for a time. Then there was a lonely period apart while one member, say, arranged the largest merger in Wall Street history, while the other settled for neurosurgery after dropping out of sommelier school. <laughs> See? He's good at what he does, man. Sometimes we get to read about modern couples who propose to each other simultaneously. But most of the time, the groom does it the old-fashioned way, often, it seems, while hot air ballooning above the Napa Valley or by letting the woman find a diamond engagement ring in her scuba mask while they're exploring endangered coral reefs near the Seychelles. <laughs> okay. So... It's quite a portrait. It's, it's quite, quite a, portrait. a portrait. But then, okay. So he's doing something here that he's clearly very good at. Mm -hmm. He's giving you these little status details that indicate the aesthetic shift 
that has happened in America in the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. So to understand what David Brooks is really doing here, we're going to take a little detour. By far the best article that's ever been written about David Brooks was in 2004 by Sasha Isenberg in Philadelphia Magazine. He's not talking about this book specifically. He's talking about a Atlantic article that he wrote basically doing a like red red counties and blue counties kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So this is an excerpt from the David Brooks article. He's talking about Franklin County, Pennsylvania, which is his like red county. Mm -hmm. He says, Franklin County is a place where no blue New York Times delivery bags dot driveways on Sunday mornings, where people don't complain that Woody Allen isn't as funny as he used to be. In red America, churches are everywhere. In blue America, Thai restaurants are everywhere. In red America, they have QVC, the Pro Bowlers Tour, and hunting. In blue America, we have NPR, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and socially conscious investing. Mm -hmm. So you see what he's doing, right? He's doing the same listing off of little status details that have this very appealing specificity to them. But then Sasha Isenberg actually checks these things. And it turns out that QVC is not more popular in red states. It's much more of like a suburban, exurban thing across the country. Doris Kearns Goodwin is like extremely popular in Texas. The thing about like they go to church in red states and they go to Thai restaurants in blue states is just totally fucking baffling. And I can't believe it got past an editor. Like <laughs> obviously they have Thai restaurants everywhere in America. Right, At one right. point he says like in red counties they have riding lawnmowers and in blue counties they have undocumented immigrants. <laughs> what the fuck? No, they have <laughs> like undocumented populations are larger in red states. Right, right. So at one point David Brooks said that he like it was a challenge for me to spend twenty dollars on a meal when i was in red america and he's like i went to red lobster over and over again i couldn't spend 20 bucks and then sasha isenberg goes to this place and like he goes to red lobster and the most expensive item on the menu is a steak for 28 bucks <laughs> so in this piece he says i called brooks to see if i was misreading his work i told him about my trip to franklin county and the ease with which i was able to spend twenty dollars on a meal he laughed i didn't see it when i was there but it's true you can get a nice meal at the mercerberg inn i said it was just as easy at red lobster that was partially to make a point that if Red Lobster is your upper end, he replied, his voice trailing away, that was partially tongue-in-cheek, but I did have several mini-dinners there, and I never topped $20. I went through some of the other instances where he made declarations that appeared insupportable. He accused me of being too pedantic, taking all this too literally, or of taking a joke and distorting it. Satire has its purpose, but assuming it's on the mark, Brooks should be able to adduce real-world examples that are true. I asked him how I was supposed to tell what was comedy and what was sociology. Generally, I rely on intelligent readers to know. And I think at the Atlantic Monthly, every intelligent reader can tell what the difference is, he replied. You're not approaching the piece in the spirit of an honest reporter, he said. Is this how you're going to start your career? I mean, really doing this kind of piece? I used to do them. I know them, how one starts. But it's just something you'll mature beyond. <laughs> what a fucking hack. What a fucking hack, dude. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand, like, the, like, intelligent readers would know I was lying about the Red Lobster thing. Like, what, yeah, why, why would, how? Why, why what, would you know that? Why would anyone think that you made up the amount of money that you're spending exactly. at Red Lobster? <laughs> And so it's already suddenly obvious what we're going to find when we return to the wedding passage. Not all of the vows columns are online. And like, I, I don't know, I'm sure I'm missing something. But there's a huge brick of text, only like a half or a third of which we read, mm -hmm. where David Brooks just hammers you with all of these status details from the wedding page of The New York Times. I looked into all of these claims and like very few of them check out. So he says... An amazing number of couples seem to have first met while recovering from marathons. Couldn't find any of that. Uh -huh. He says they went on romantic vacations to Myanmar and Minsk. I could find no reference to that. I did actually find somebody who proposed to his girlfriend in a hot air balloon. That was like the only detail I could actually check out. But he then has this detail of proposing by putting a ring in her scuba mask, yeah. which doesn't, it just like doesn't make any fucking sense as like how she putting it on and doesn't notice the ring. Right. So I think his defense of that one would be that like, well, that one's obviously a joke. 
But then you're also maybe lying about people meeting each other while recovering from marathons. I think there's something important here, here, which is that, like, if all of your writing is based on anecdotal evidence. Right. Then the anecdotes should be true. Exactly. Then the fucking anecdotes should be true. You know? <laughs> but when you're just repeating these little factoids, it's like, oh, you're just doing stereotypes. You're basically doing Jeff Foxworthy. You're like, and you might be a bobo. <laughs> Imagine being like the owner of a diner where like David Brooks rolls in with like pleated pants and <laughs> uh, two blue uh, button down shirts, uh, one on top of the other. And he's like, hi, give me your folksiest meal, please. It's right. Here's like, God damn it. <laughs> is it election season already? So I'm going to send you the opening of the next chapter. You tell me whether this is lying or not. He does something extremely weird. All right. I'm holding up traffic. I'm walking down the street in Burlington, Vermont, and I come to a corner and see a car approaching, so I stop. The car stops. Meanwhile, I've been distracted by some hippies playing frisbee in the park, and I stand there daydreaming for what must be 15 or 20 seconds. The car waits. In a normal city, cars roll through these situations. If they see an opening, they take it. But this is Burlington, one of the most socially enlightened cities in America. And drivers here are aware that America has degenerated into a car-obsessed culture where driving threatens to crush the natural rhythms of foot traffic and local face-to-face -face community. This driver knows that while sitting behind the wheel, he is ethically inferior to a pedestrian like me. And to demonstrate his civic ideals, he is going to make damn sure that I get the right of way, no matter how long it takes. Eventually, he honks politely, and I wake up and belatedly cross the street. I have to go through this embarrassing ritual about a dozen times before I finally adapt to local moors and trudge straight into intersections. So this is a story where David Brooks crossed the street. <laughs> I, I feel like it's, it's this very much defines his approach to reporting, where it's like he goes places and he sees like fairly normal stuff, like a car stops right. for you when you're standing at an intersection, and then he projects all this weird shit onto it. He's like, they think that I'm superior to them, and that's why they stopped. It's like, well, did you talk to them? <laughs> that is definitely not what they're thinking while you stand there for 20 seconds gazing into the into the distance. <laughs> so then oh, he goes into this whole thing of like Burlington, Vermont is a latte town. Oh, God. He says like there's latte towns, but then even in places that aren't latte towns, they have like latte neighborhoods. It's like, yes, David, sometimes like places are nice. Like sometimes, <laughs> I don't know, they have cute city squares in various towns. I don't really know what you're saying with this. But then he gets to a restaurant where he has lunch and he says... I was sitting outside at a table eating lunch, counting the number of piercings the waitress had on her ears, nose, lips, and belly button. Nineteen, I think. I'm sure she loved that. I know. He's like, he's like stand still, honey. I got I to gotta call him to write. But I kept getting distracted by an aging hippie at the next table who would not <laughs> shut up about zero-based budgeting and the differences between preferred and common stock. Gray ponytailed and casual about his grooming, he was lecturing like a professor at the Harvard Business School to a young Woodstock wannabe in grainy glasses and a peasant dress. She was taking notes on a yellow legal pad, and intermittently they would digress and talk about some bookkeeping practice or management technique they could adopt at their own company. God, <laughs> this is so annoying. This is nothing but obvious fiction where he's like, I, know. I would love to just sort of like paint a quick picture of the type of people I'm talking about. Yeah. What's the easiest way to do that? Well, make them up. He also says like aging hippie, but like, how, how do you know that? The guy- Right, because he's got like long hair. Yeah, like it might just be a guy who works in finance describing finance things. Also, I don't know that any of this fucking happened, frankly. Mm -hmm. Do some people have 19 piercings? Sure. But it's like a little too perfect of a detail. Yeah, this is, I mean, and just the most purely aesthetic. Yeah. Like this guy looks like a hippie, but he's talking about business? <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> this lady has earrings, but nearby there is business being done. What's going on in this crazy town? There's also, okay, I was not going to read this to you, but I like, I, I kind of can't resist. So he's walking around this latte town and he does a bunch of like excruciating shtick about like the grocery store has like organic items now, which like, okay. And then he says, 
The Great Harvest Bread Company has recently opened up a franchise in town. This particular store is owned by Ed and Lori Kirpius. Ed got his MBA in 1987 and moved to Chicago, where he was a currency trader. Then, as if driven by the ineluctable winds of the zeitgeist, he gave up on the decade of greed stuff so he could spend more time with his family and community. So him and his wife opened up the shop. They greet you warmly as you walk in the door and hand you a sample slice about the size of a coffee table book. A short lecture commences on the naturalness of the ingredients and the authenticity of the baking process. The store is spare, so you won't think there's any salesmanship going on. Instead, there are teddy bears and children's books for the kids who hang around, and there's Starbucks coffee on sale for the adults. If you ask them to slice the bread in the store, they look at you compassionately as one who has not yet risen to the higher realm of bread consciousness. <laughs> you can't ask for them, for them to slice the bread in the store. Well, uh, sir, what? sir, please leave. I was livid reading this because, like, these people just sound nice. Yeah. Like, they... <laughs> They run a bakery. You went in there and they gave you a free slice of bread and they like presumably you asked them about their life story and they told you like, mm -hmm. yeah, I used to be a currency trader. Then I moved up here to serve bread. And then you're like, oh, fuck these people. I'm going to make fun of them in my like best selling book right. and like read all this weird stuff into them. That, like they were judging me for wanting the bread sliced. According to the facts here, they just seem like nice people right. who like made some chit chat with you. I will take your straightest, whitest loaf of bread, please. <laughs> sliced. <laughs> But then, okay, so then, I mean, this then becomes, like, a, a whole tedious thing where, like, he goes to Anthropology, which is a furniture oh, store, which is, like, very zeitgeisty at the time. And then <sighs> he describes, like, the couches with, you know, distressed leather and blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. It's, oh, God. It's, it's very hard to keep your concentration. It's just punishing to read these fucking passages. Girls are ripping their own jeans these days. But then, okay, but then what really frustrates me about this book is that I actually think that he's on to something. Mm -hmm. I think that this aesthetic shift that we went through from the 80s to, I guess, the 2000s, where, like, yeah, people were paying $150 for jeans that had fucking holes in them. Right. The mass marketing of authenticity, of the aesthetic of authenticity. I would like to read an actual, a real book about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I also think that, like, the people who are doing the same corporate work as their fathers but have like adopted the optics of either individualism or, or counterculture, whatever you might want to call it. That's sort of an interesting topic too, right? That um, the, the aesthetics have changed. But the least interesting way to go about that is to walk into a bakery and be like, things are crazy now. Apricot <laughs> loaves. I do think it's sort of, there's a degree to which like, corporations have adopted these aesthetics mm, mm. and that is like a little more nefarious and weird and complex but i do yeah. think that if it's like the year 2000 and there's like someone who was a hippie in 1971 and now they have a job but also a ponytail that's not that so this touches on a wider issue so david brooks is such a compelling writer in large part because he just makes things up right? he's like stephen glass of the polite set i mean he just makes up all these assertions all these motivations, it just makes makes up you know, facts, makes up anecdotes, just makes stuff up like Stephen Klaas, the famous fabulous for the New Republic. There was the movie made about him, Shattered Glass. But uh, David Brooks still retains a place in polite society and writes a regular column for the New York Times, just pouring out stuff that he just makes up. It's a lot easier to be compelling and interesting if you're trafficking in fiction, if you're just you know, making up killer anecdotes and killer observations. Like he's incredibly entertaining, but he is claiming to be giving you something that is journalism, that is factually accurate, but it's not. It's just bogus. So do you optimize for compelling? Do you optimize for attention grabbing? Do you optimize for truth? 
Do you optimize for success? Do you optimize for, for happiness? Like David Brooks is not someone who optimizes for truth, right? And what, what was it, his second wife who converted to Judaism to marry him, and then David Brooks you know, began this affair with his research assistant and uh, you know, dumped her, you know, married his, his very Christian research assistant, and, and now appears to have essentially converted to Christianity, if not in fact, if not de facto, then de jure. Uh, you know, David Brooks sounds more and more like a Christian these days, which is fine. It's just you know part of this uh, interesting journey that that he's been been on, and I think these guys from the podcast if books could kill are absolutely nailing it. Weird to me that just sort of makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think you're right about the fact that it's that a lot of it goes back to marketing. Mm -hmm. In a passage like it, it appears toward the end of the book, and I actually skipped it because I was like, I can't fucking do this again. He goes to. Are you familiar with REI, the outdoor goods store? Sure. So it's yeah. like you know whatever North Face, any of these like high end yeah. parka companies. And he has something that is like borderline insightful about how they're selling all this like super hardcore mountaineering gear to people who are just going to like wear it in their Subaru as they drive to their office park and walk like three minutes to their job. Yep. It's the right. aesthetics of like, you're an extreme person doing extreme stuff. Right. He has another borderline interesting section about vacations, how it used to be like you'd go to Paris and you'd go to the Eiffel Tower or whatever. Yeah. But now it's sort of like, well, when you go to Paris, you stay at like an abandoned candle factory. Everything has been sort of artisanized. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants like an individual experience and none of us want to feel like we're part of mass culture. And the mass culture has gotten very good at selling that back to us. The idea that we're our own individual person, even as like I'm wearing an REI coat that 40,000 other people own. Yeah. I, I think it's there's a degree to which, like, the suburbs have sort of, like, swallowed our soul. Mm. That has left people feeling like they don't have a way to express themselves individually. Um, there's just, there's too many people. We're all pretty yeah. similar. How, how do you reckon with existence? How do you fend right. off your exist, your perpetual existential crisis? You need to believe that you are doing something interesting. Yeah. Well, this is, this is another thing that Brooks never really talks about in his book. He, he, because he has so much contempt for liberals who like run nice bakeries, mm -hmm. he keeps going back to this as like a liberal thing. But I, I read this really interesting article when I was researching our episode on the chicks for You're Wrong About about the aesthetics of country western music uh -huh. taking over the republican party you know george hw bush didn't wear a cowboy hat yeah, no he was a, a bureaucrat and a statesman yeah he's like a, he's like a patrician old money guy right and you mm -hmm. get to his son who has this fake ranch in texas and he has to right. play up all this texas stuff even though he's like very obviously right. just like a, a legacy kid an accent that's drastically stronger than his father's exactly <laughs> okay so let's go into what what's kind of underlaying the, the do's back to a great book by Roddy Goldberg theories on uh, conservative oppression, a cultural, damn, I forgot the title of the book, but uh, it's the one by Roddy Goldberg. It's a, it's a theory of why conservatives feel that they're oppressed. So chapter four, he begins the philosophical theoretical section of his book, and he begins by talking about the subtraction story. So the the modern ruling narrative about the past is that it was largely benighted and the present, we've subtracted the irrational, stupid, bigoted, ignorant parts of the past to arrive at our more enlightened present. So what we get are stories of our present day and modernity of secularism which are explained by humans have dropped, humans have lost, humans have removed, humans have sloughed off, humans have 
liberated themselves from certain earlier confining horizons, from illusions, from limitations of knowledge, that they've ditched the ignorance, the, you know, the commitment to traditions that are irrational. And now we, we subtracted that which was stupid and irrational and essentially religious. We are no longer impeded by these ignorant, stupid parts of the past. So you can summarize this philosophically with the, the title, like the subtraction story, right? These are the official ruling dominant narratives of modernity and of secularism. And so we get these contrasts between an ignorant past, a benighted past, a, a past that's just mired in superstition and ignorance and prejudice and violence. And now we have the enlightened present where we have ever expanding freedoms and knowledge. And we finally see things and people as they are without the religious and other traditional illusions that formally compromised our understanding. So this is the self-congratulatory story that modernity tells about itself and its own origins. That's Michael Allen Gillespie in his thoughtful book, The Theological Origins of Modernity. So we now have modernity as a secular realm where God, where man has replaced God as the center of existence. We now live in a realm of individualism, of you know, subjectivity. You know, we, we pursue our own feelings and our own desires. We explore, we discover, we have freedom, we have rights, we have equality, we have tolerate, tolerance, we have liberalism, we have the nation state, we have all these wonderful things. So we have subtracted the ignorance of the past, including religion. And so we have heroes in subtraction stories like Copernicus and Galileo who dared to question the dogmas of their day and they helped to overthrow superstition in the name of reason. And they overthrew hierarchy in the name of freedom and equality. And so they cleared the way for all these new possibilities of thought and action for a happier way of life, for this worldly fulfillment. Right? We're no longer oppressed by the moral rigor of the ignorant past. So someone like a Richard Dawkins is a particular exponent of this view on life. Now, most people don't think you know, deeply about these narratives, but these are the ruling narratives in the media, in academia, among elites, right, among those who dominate the cultural means of production, they, they almost all hold to the, to the narrative of subtraction of ignorance of bigotry and religion, essentially from the past. So conservatives don't accept the subtraction story at face value. They don't accept liberalism at face value, right? They, they reject the subtraction account of modernity, and they understand that liberalism's not just a set of you know, philosophical and political principles, but liberalism is essentially a way of life. And it's not just a political creed. It's another partisan way of life where you see your own in-group is superior to everyone else. So the subtraction account, which liberals and moderns hold by, it's not just a historical thesis, but essentially it is the lens through which the meaning of events going on around us is understood. So, Back in the ancient world, there's the philosopher Charles Taylor, they wouldn't understand what we now mean by fulfillment, right? Now everyone's talking about fulfillment. But in pre-modern identity, identity prior to the 18th century, fulfillment meant finding your place in the pattern, in the order of life. And so this is still the perspective of traditional ways of life, including Orthodox Judaism, 
traditional forms of Catholicism, uh, fulfillment is not following your bliss. Fulfillment is following your place in the greater order of things. So you're no longer primarily driven by fulfilling your internal desires, but you want to establish your appropriate, your proper position in the greater order of things, such as usually to get married, have a family, participate in your community. So traditionally, living a full life meant recognizing one's place within the greater order, and that's still the traditional conception of life. And seeking your place in the established order means acknowledging that you are also dependent on this greater order, that it is greater than you are. The, the success of your life is a function of whether or not you fulfill your responsibilities in this order. So Michael Medved, the radio talk show host, makes this point that the underlying ethos for liberals is follow your bliss, and the underlying ethos for conservatives or traditionalists is to do your duty. So very different conceptions of life. Follow your bliss, you know, pursue your desires versus do your duty, find your place in the wider order. So from a traditional perspective, there's a wider order out there that operates independently of our own personal predilections. And this wider order calls upon us to respond appropriately. You know, whether we are a king, a lord, a peasant, a priest, a penitent, right? This is the traditional conception of life. So pre-moderns did not hold a scientific worldview because their worldview is not reducible to strictly physical features of, of science. So people who are traditional now, we or conservative, they're often called medieval, right? and they are more medieval than modern secular leftists because they believe in things far beyond the physical, right? They believe in an order to the universe which cannot be scientifically investigated or verified. So from a traditional perspective, living up to one's place, to one's responsibilities in the greater order of things is not just your own choice, it is everybody's business. Each one of us helps to sustain the order in which everyone lives. This is our public order. So there's much more social control of mores in pre-modern society. There was a striking lack of privacy. Your white akin dictated most of your individual life pattern, such as who you married and when you married. And, and the village community exercised an extraordinary level of surveillance over the lives of its members. This is the traditional way of looking at life. Lucas stayed off Odyssey and BitChute this year, stream-wise. He doesn't go over there. Too busy with his paywall gold. Not sure Luke plays Parrot Room secret content. Either. I am streaming, streaming live right now on Odyssey. I upload pretty much every stream I do also to BitChute. Uh, reasonable and responsible, says to half Galician. There are so few places left for the kind of smug, self-righteous scoring you're indulging in. Uh, reasonable and responsible says, 
Congratulations on completely missing the point. Time and place for everything. Read the atmosphere. And uh, reasonable, responsible says of half completion. It reminds me of my youngest, still adolescence. So, well, we were a big tent here. We have all sorts of personalities. So, traditional conception of life, such as in Orthodox Judaism today, to, to transgress against the mores of the community, is not just to personally sin, it is to promote a reduction of equilibrium in the order of things. You are creating impurity that affects other people, right? So you are calling down powers that are damaging to other people's health and prosperity. So you have the the priestly rites and the purity system in the Torah, in, in the Pentateuch, which takes for granted that impurity is just constantly going to be generated by the people, but there must be means for dealing with this impurity, including, you know, sending certain impure people outside of the camp, but the, the, the community must continually be cleaning. So in some traditional ways of life, they they burn incense to ward off evil spirits. They, they clean the toilet uh, twice a day. They, they do all sorts of things to, we, you know, to remove impurity, to remove the, the evil spirits. This is, this is the traditional conception of life. And so when the individual does something that goes against the mores of the community, they don't just take on some individual sin, but they bring impurity and damage to other people's health and prosperity. So modern notions of privacy make absolutely no sense in this traditional conception of life and community. But as we become more liberal, this is because our sense of self is no longer so strongly bound up with our participation in the greater order of things. Instead, we believe that we can disengage from any order that is going on around us. So the modern self is essentially defined by its capacity to step backwards from any particular community, any particular tradition, any particular point of view. It understands itself as liberated from these outmoded, traditional, superstitious forms of social organization, which used to imprison us such as the theistic worldview, the religious worldview, the traditional forms of hierarchy. And uh, we can now do our own thing. So what led to the modern secular liberal perspective is the scientific revolution of the 17th century, said that uh, the, the sun does not revolve around the earth, the earth revolves around the sun. From a traditional perspective, the human being is the center of the universe. Right? The world was, was made for man using the language of the book of Genesis. And so animals are important and the environment is important and beaches are important and forests are important and rivers are important to the extent that they serve man. But now with the scientific revolution, we're encouraged to step outside of ourselves and to let go of any presupposition that, say, human beings are any more important than any other animal the more liberal modern perspective on human beings is that we are just another animal, only we have some certain superior skills for being strategic about pursuing our desires. So the scientific revolution, the modern revolution, the liberal revolution cause people to look upon themselves from the outside. That means to be reflexive, to see yourself and your actions as other people would see them and to start seeing things in non 
anthropocentric terms, no longer see things from the human-centered perspective on the universe. So stop presupposing the existence of distinctly human capacities and dispositions. Instead, see yourself in the wider realm of animals and nature. So if you believe strongly in concepts such as honor and glory, that presupposes a traditional conception of life, that there is a greater order of things, that it's your duty in life to fit in with this wider order, that you into it a sense of significance for activities that from a modern naturalistic liberal conception are just irredeemably subjective. But from a traditional perspective, you see you impose order on the universe that is not naturally scientifically verifiable. So the pre-modern imperative is to realize your place in the greater pattern, right? Modern fulfillment is a whole different kettle of fish, right? We are no longer expected to believe in anything that cannot be understood scientifically. So the modern liberal perspective has this strategic conception of human agency, right? We, we see ourselves as basically good, uh, basically rational, such as what Stefan Molyneux was talking about earlier, and we see that the superiority of people over animals lies in the human ability to envisage a longer time scale, to understand more complex cause and effect relationships, and to engage in more efficient calculations. So we can conceive different possibilities. We can calculate how to arrive at them. We can choose between them, and thus we can plan our own lives without respect to a greater order. So we can also see things clearly. That's part of the liberal modern perspective, that we're essentially rational, essentially decent, that we're capable of strategic planning. So we can plan well, we can lay out possibilities clearly, we can calculate their value to us in terms of our goals, we can calculate the probabilities and costs of their attainment, and then our choices can be clear and conscious, right? That's the modern liberal perspective, as opposed to the traditional conservative perspective, which is that our reason is deeply flawed, that uh, we, we can't see clearly that uh, our own biases, our hormones, our, our drives, our life experiences are constantly polluting the, the clarity of our vision. So the, the traditionalist says our human capacity is to pursue what is good through proper attunement to the wider pattern, to find our place in the greater order of things. The modern liberal strategic perspective says that we have this quantitative advantage over animals in the pursuit of our appetites, that we're just more complex than other animals. But that is a di difference of degree, not of kind. We just have an ability to envision longer time horizons and to understand more complex causal relationships. So science enables us to have more control over external nature. And what comes with that is that we should be more self-controlled. So there's this new concept of human virtue. So pre-modern understandings of human flourishing were replaced. So the pre-modern wise, you find your place in the wider order. The modern approach is that we understand ourselves in strategic terms. This is the modern ethic of independence, self-control, self-responsibility, a sort of disengagement, which brings a type of control, a stance which requires courage, 
We refuse the easy comforts of conforming to tradition. We refuse the consolations of an enchanted, magical, mysterious, God-infused world. We stop surrendering to the prompting of the senses. You can call this the ethos of the disengaged, self-control, and self-reflexive self. So we, as moderns, are encouraged to resist pre-modern temptations, right? Things like religion. And we have been liberated for this worldly human flourishing. And so this is what the subtraction stories have uh, subtracted. A little bit more here from an analysis of David Brooks's book, Bobos in Paradise. The aesthetic sort of move has happened on both sides. It just obviously happened differently. Like yeah. a lot of people in red states drive pickup trucks who like maybe help their friend move once a year. Yeah, They're doing yeah. the same thing as the REI people are doing. Yeah. These aren't really like elite things. This is kind of everybody. And, and most of this is like mass culture yeah starbucks was in every fucking mall in america anthropology is in every mall in america yeah th this is from a weird time in like the late 90s early aughts when for some reason starbucks was like just affiliated with like fluffy liberals yeah this is like a massive sprawling multi-billion dollar company right. there's a tendency <laughs> among the david brooks's of the world to just like look at whatever liberals are doing and being like well that's just some frilly bullshit <laughs> you know yeah. Why are, why are you eating uh, Wonder Bread off the floor? Oh, uh, you bought a jacket. You don't really need that vest. I'm going to write a book about this. All right. Okay. So if you are still trying to live for glory, all right, if you're still given to shame, then you've compromised your own agency from this model liberal perspective, right? You're just not sufficiently self-controlled, self-reflexive, disengaged, strategic, right? You, you are still weighed down by, by tradition. So if you understand yourself non-anthropocentrically, if you try to understand yourself in a disengaged scientific manner, then you, you become liberated from useless austerities and rigors, as David Hume put it. You're liberated from the anachronistic moralism premised on religion and God. So now you can see traditional taboos for what they are, not part of an eternal order of things, but rather outdated, antiquated rules that have outlived their usefulness as natural adaptations to particular environments. So the, the liberal, the modern, has a particular conception of harm, like harm is only something that can be done to you physically. But if you're a traditionalist, you're very likely to feel that changing the definition of marriage to include same-sex couples is doing a very real psychic harm to you because it's, it's redefining an institution that you likely regard as important or even holy and as, as a sacrament rather than just some bureaucratic agreement. So th there's no reason that only physical harms are real, right? Psychic and communal harms are, are just as real, right? They, they're features of our experience. We, we complain about spiritual harm, psychic harm, and communal harm from, from a modern perspective just because we are mired in pre-modern thought patterns, right? Because we, we imagine that we are part of this, you know, greater pattern, this greater order. So Amy Wax, who I've often played excerpts from on her show, she, she says that, you know, rationalistic liberals they are not impressed by social conservatives' vague premonitions of erosion, erosion or unraveling of the social order. 
right? So the, the modern rationalistic, disengaged, reflexive liberal is not impressed by conservative having these vague premonitions of the erosion or unraveling of the social order through same-sex marriage. Liberals dismiss this as an inadequate basis for resisting change that satisfies immediate needs and urgent desires. Right? So liberals understand these conservative vague premonitions as symptoms of a lingering pre-modern sensibility, which cannot be allowed to interfere with modern fulfillment. So Justice Blackman, his dissent in Bowers versus Hardwick, he argued homosexuality in and of itself involves no real interference with the rights of others. The mere knowledge that other individuals do not adhere to one's value system cannot be a legally cognizable interest. So this is how moral opposition to homosexuality is conceived from the modern liberal strategic perspective is just mere annoyance rather than the traditional perspective where homosexual activity may in some traditions be seen as a very as a dis, disequilibrium in the very order of things. It is a ripping of the, the moral fabric of a community. So from a liberal perspective, why would you desire to regulate others' unobtrusive personal conduct? You know, just because you're concerned about the moral fiber of society, that you know, that's some disingenuous gambit to command state power in the service of you know, what are merely personal preferences. So a different way of understanding conservative morality and liberal morality is that conservatives are animated by a strict father morality and liberals embrace a mother nurturing morality. So a nurturing parent, a mother morality promotes a world governed by bonds of affection, respect, and interdependence. It encourages people to develop their potential, provides help when necessary. And those who are helped feel a responsibility to help others and carry out that responsibility. Strict father morality sees morality as the strength, the moral fiber, the backbone to resist evil and to make an ideal of moral uprightness and to find your place in the greater order of things. So the military will tend to embody strict father values, hierarchy, authority, self-discipline, building strength, fighting evil. Education spending will seem to conservatives frequently as wasteful because education educators are mostly nurturers standing in the way of strict father morality. So conservatives support the freedom to own guns while opposing the freedom to abort a fetus because guns are seen as the individual's form of protection in a hostile world. So conservatives see both human nature and the wider world as not good. Liberals see people and, and the wider world as essentially good. Abortion symbolizes corrupt parental indulgence. It's a child's failure to learn from her mistakes. It's a woman's preference for a career above motherhood. These are all affronts to strict father morality. So much of the traditionalist and conservative approach to life is motivated by disgust. So people on the right tend to have a much more intense disgust reflex than people on the left. So Martha Nussbaum is a convert to Judaism. She's a philosopher of the left. She's at the University of Chicago. She is completely opposed to this shame disgust reflex as a basis for social policy. So she notes that what inspires disgust is typically the male thought of the male homosexual, imagined as anally penetrable. The idea of semen and feces mixing together inside the body of a male is one of the most disgusting ideas imaginable to males for whom the idea of 
non-penetrability is a sacred boundary against stickiness, ooze, and death. The presence of a homosexual male in the neighborhood inspires the thought that one might oneself lose one's clean safeness, become the receptacle for those animal products. Thus, disgust is ultimately disgust at one's own imagined penetrability and ooziness. And this is why the male homosexual is both regarded with disgust and viewed with fear as a predator who might make everyone else disgusting. So for, for the liberal, this kind of disgust, you know, distorts our moral thinking. So Martha Nussbaum, quintessential liberal and modern, wants a society that acknowledges its own humanity, that neither hides from it or from us, a society of citizens who admit that they are needy and vulnerable, who discard the grandiose demands for omnipotence and completeness that have been at the heart of so much human mystery, misery. So in the Supreme Court case, West Virginia versus Barnett, Justice Jackson declared that, that if there is one fixed star in the U.S. Constitution is that no official, whether high or low, is entitled to prescribe what is orthodox and what is true. So this is a compelling proposition, but also clearly false. Right? Every society needs to create meaning. Society is a meaning-making system. Right? Statecraft means creating, maintaining background webs of meaning through which we understand ourselves as both citizens and private actors. And the government has a huge role in prescribing what shall be orthodox with, say, with regard to marriage, with regard to family. So it's the regulation of social meaning that was why many in the military and many conservatives and traditionalists resisted the open inclusion of homosexuals in their ranks. Because this inclusion threat to impose an orthodoxy by making more ambiguous the social meaning of being in the military. So traditionally, being in the military has been defined as unambiguously male, virtues, strong, disciplined, motionless, and heterosexual. So the inclusion of gays who are stereotyped as effeminate, weak, and irresolute alters the social meaning of military membership and deprives it of its traditional connotations. So the open inclusion of gays in the military established a new orthodoxy, which was legislated by the government. This altered social meanings. An individual might continue to proclaim that the military enterprise is still essentially heterosexual, but this judgment is no longer built into the intrinsic meaning of military life. Right? It has lost its you know, unquestioned authority. So we cannot, strictly speaking, believe what we will. The strength of our own convictions is largely a function of the social meanings that are created by our community and by our nation. So when these understandings and expectations are uncontested and invisible, social meanings are natural, they seem natural, they are necessary, they are strong. The more that social meaning appears natural, necessary, uncontested, invisible, the more powerful, the more unavoidable these meaning meanings appear to be. The converse is also true, more contestant or contingent, depending upon the less powerful meanings to be. So all social meanings from a cosmic perspective are arbitrary, but it is a basic of any communal life that the arbitrariness of communal social meanings not be recognized. Right? The force of social meaning for, for terms like family and marriage and military depends upon their not appearing constructed, right? Not as they're not products of mere opinion, right? They're just part of the ineluctable greater order of things.
So the subtraction, subtraction account, the secular modernity, conceals the universality of what Ernest Becker in The Denial of Death calls hero systems. So this is what society is and has always been. It is a symbolic action system. It is a structure of statuses and roles, customs and rules of behavior designed to serve as a vehicle for earthly heroism. Each script is unique. Each culture has a different hero system. But the anthropologists call cultural relativity is the relativity of hero systems the world over, that each cultural system cuts out roles for earthly heroics. Each system cuts out roles for performances of various degrees of heroism, from the high heroism of the Churchill, the Mao, or Buddha, to the low heroism of the coal miner, the peasant, the simple priest, the plain, everyday earthly heroism wrought by gnarled working hands, guiding a family through hunger and disease. So it doesn't matter whether our community's hero system is magical, religious, primitive, secular, scientific, or civilized. It is still a mythical hero system that people serve to earn a feeling of primary value, of being special in the cosmos, of ultimate usefulness to creation, of unshakable meaning. And we earn this feeling by carving out a place in nature, by building an edifice that reflects human value, a temple, a cathedral, a totem pole, a stadium for sports, a skyscraper, a family that lasts generations. And we hope and believe the things that we create in society are of lasting worth and meaning that they are outlived and outshine our death and decay. So no matter how scientific or secular the claims of a particular hero system is, it's still as religious as any other. So civilized society is still a hopeful belief and protest that science, money, and goods make man count for more than any other animal. So everything that man does in this sense is religious and heroic, yet in danger constantly of being fictitious and fallible. So when we step outside our hero system, right, the hero system you know, ceases to, to work as intensely for us. Back to discussion of David Brooks, Bobos in Paradise. So the next chapter is about corporations. Hmm. It gets into a different tendency of his, but first we have to start with the opening, the opening vignette. This is about uh, business and pleasure. Ugh. Okay. Go down to your local park in the summertime. You'll see women jogging or running in sports bras and skin-tight spandex pants. <laughs> All right, David. I know. Just <laughs> tone it down, David. Relax. Imagine if the Puritans could get a load of this. Women running around in their underwear in public. But look at the bra joggers more closely. It's not wanton hedonism you see on their faces. They're not exposing themselves for the sake of exhibitionism. Any erotic effect of their near nudity is counteracted by their expressions of grim determination. They're setting goals and striving to achieve them. You never see them smile. Not true. David Brooks okay. is like is uh, telling every jogger that passes him to smile, and none of them are smiling. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, they never smile. <laughs> they look back angrily, like your wife when <laughs> when you return from work two hours late after a long dinner with your research assistant. So this chapter is about companies. He talks about how companies are kind of getting. So that was a dig about how David Brooks, while while married to a woman who converted to Judaism for him carrying on a long-running affair with his uh, research assistant. Rid of these hierarchical things. Apparently, there was a thing where DreamWorks got rid of job titles. Okay. One of the examples is AOL, because it's the year 2000. Mm -hmm. So they're doing, like, urban villages. There's another company that sets up, like, rolling desks to make it easier for people to collaborate. Like, all, you know, the bobo move is to get rid of hierarchies, right? So it's like companies are getting rid of hierarchies. Okay, yeah. CEOs are wearing jeans now. CEOs show up in sweaters. Mm -hmm. A lot of CEOs talk about work as this form of self-actualization. They talk about workers as their families. There's kind of like this casualization and... It's a little bit gauche to talk about things like, oh, you're my boss or whatever at work. Yeah. He talks about how, you know, the the CEOs, even though they're all saying this, like, oh, it's it's not hierarchical here or whatever, they're still kind of bragging 
when I go into work on the weekends, I see a lot of people coming. They're part of our family. And so they just like want to work on the weekends. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of trying to tie it back to the jogger. He says, countercultural capitalists are not restrained by the old puritanical or Protestant code. Instead, they've constructed their own ethos that creates a similar and perhaps more rigorous system of restraint. They have transformed work into a spiritual and intellectual vocation, so they approach their labor with the fervor of artists and missionaries. Their collars may not be buttoned up, and their desks may not be neat, but they are, after a fashion, quite self-disciplined. Members of the educated class often regard work as an expression of their entire being, so of course they devote themselves to it with phenomenal energy. For many, there is no time when they are not at work. <laughs> First of all, I am very, very annoyed to have David Brooks talking to me about what having a job is like. <laughs> Only one of us knows what having a job is like, David. There, there's not, it's not that there's nothing here in the sort of like shift from traditional workplace aesthetics to modern workplace aesthetics. But A, a lot of that is like CEOs realizing that a lot of traditional workplace aesthetics contribute nothing to productivity. So why not strip them away? Right. Another part of it, it's always sort of felt like a lot of this shit, a lot of like the new modern workplace, which is something that was sort of just getting off the ground when he wrote this book. A lot of that is like a sort of late capitalist thing where people realize on some level that they're getting a bad deal. Right. They're working too much and losing their grip on the things in life that matter to them. And so workplaces responded by being like, what if there was an espresso machine? Right. <laughs> like, would that make you feel like you're not wasting your life? Oh, yeah. I mean, one thing that's amazing to me about this book is that every once in a while he will write a paragraph like this one that is, I think, insightful and true, but he doesn't, like, have any thoughts about it. So what he's basically saying here is that CEOs have started marketing work as, like, self-actualization. Yeah. And Okay, I will be back in an hour or so, depending on the quality of the college football playoff game. Bye-bye.